Hi, this is Jesslyn Etchell, and you're listening to my podcast, Wildish Wise Women, Conversations with Everyday Goddesses. In this series, I interview my favorite women on their topics of passion in an effort to connect us so that we remember that women supporting women is our greatest strength. I want to live in a world where women build each other up instead of tear each other down. And this podcast, in addition to the in-person women's circles I lead, are my offering towards this vision. Thanks so much for listening. I am really excited today to be speaking to Carla Grossini-Concha, who happens to be our first repeat guest on the podcast. So if you haven't listened to Carla's first episode, she talked about the loss of her son the day after he was born in episode 14, which is entitled Layers of Loss. Of course, not an easy topic to talk about, but a really powerful interview if you'd like to listen to that one first. Um, Today, she'll be talking to us about the second piece of that, uh, which is parenting after loss. And we'll get to learn a little bit about how Luca got a sister and what that's like for Carla and her family. So Carla is a mother of two, one living child and one child who she carries in her heart and feels all around her all the time. She says if she can quiet her mind enough. Carla's a native New Yorker and she transplanted for her greater well-being to Southern California almost 20 years ago. And you can find her on Instagram and also the blogs that she writes on, which I will link. And as I said, Carla's going to talk to us today about what it's like parenting after a traumatic loss. Welcome, Carla. Thank you, Jessica. So I can't say enough good things about Carla, actually. Um, So I think most of you know the reason why I do this podcast is because I know awesome women and I want you to know them too. But Carla's fun and funny and compassionate and beautiful inside and out. And uh, despite all of the things that she's been through, she shares this with others so that they know what it's like or how they can be there for somebody else. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to share about something so dear. Hmm. So let's take a minute to connect. Let's maybe close our eyes and find our way to each other, even though we're not in the same location. And anyone listening can join us with three deep breaths. Take an inhale through your nose. And exhale out your mouth. And a couple more like that, just to ground into our bodies, into this space together. And may each woman who needs the wisdom of this call find her way here. May we speak from the heart and create a wave of peace that radiates out on a global level. May each woman remember her sacred nature and feel the value of her presence in this world. So Carla, last time I asked you what your favorite thing about being a woman was, and no surprise, you answered being a mama. So I guess today, given where we're headed with this topic, I'm curious, um, what's your favorite thing about being a parent? I think the unsolicited hugs. <laughs> nice. We, we just embarked into um, into Elia going to preschool, and and 
the kisses that we get when we drop her off. Very sweet. Oh my gosh, we Blake and I were just looking at a picture of her you posted. She's like on a little seesaw with a big old smile on her face. Clearly enjoying herself. She's just like all heart. <sighs> um, so we got such a beautiful storytelling weaving of the story of how Luca came into this world and how he left this world. I would love to give Elia a little bit of time for her story to be shared. So whatever you want to share about how she came Earthside and how you got to be her mama and um, how you co-parent with Gina, just kind of freeform. You can just tell a little bit of her story if you don't mind. Right. Well, um, her story begins with her, her brother, Luca. And uh, because we had a an emergency cesarean and I had some residual trauma uh in my body from uh, his birth, we were told that we couldn't try again for at least nine months. Um, so that, that nine months was a sort of preparation and holding pattern. Um, and <clears throat> we were so hopeful. The intention was set. We, we wanted another child. Um, we wanted to have a healthy living child. And so I actually had contacted a birth intuitive sort of psychologist, sort of birth worker. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. Uh, I know that it was brought up in our training, Anna Verwall. I only know because of you, yeah. And she, uh, I, was, I was really encouraged to communicate with her, um, prior to trying. And so I had made an appointment and, um, had a meeting with her and explained Luca's story. And she said to us, before you try again, before you are beginning the, the next step of this journey of trying to conceive again, she said, you have to let some joy into your life. She said, you've been living in so much grief and, and just all out sadness and, and depression that you need to have a little bit of fun. You need to make yourself look appealing for the souls out there that are ready to come in. Hmm. And so that night we came home and um, we had been offered a trip to go to a very magical place in Mexico with some friends. And we had turned it down, um, but that night we went home and uh, told them we were in, we were coming. Um, so we, the, the very end of 2013, we headed to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. Um, and I was already, I'd already seen the reproductive endocrinologist. I was already on our um, protocol for that, for that cycle. Um, so I was taking my medications Went, had a wonderful time with friends, got some big healing done, um, floated around in hot springs and asked for this baby to come to us and spoke with Luca every day. I did a lot of yoga down there. I ate a lot <laughs> of delicious foods. Um, and we came back to the U.S. on uh, January 1st. Um, I'm sorry, on January 2nd of 2014, we crossed the border, came back into um, San Diego, and 
three hours later, we were at the reproductive endocrinologist's office, and she um, took an image of, you know, to see my follicles and said, okay, tomorrow's it. Let's do this. And so uh, we inseminated the next day, and I got pregnant with Elia. Um, Elia's pregnancy was, as you can imagine, um, so hopeful, but so extremely anxiety-ridden from the get-go. Um, all I could think, especially during the first few weeks where we still hadn't had an ultrasound of, of her beating heart, um, it was just filled with worry about this baby staying and making its appearance earthside. Um, and that was mostly the theme for the next nine and a half months. Um, there was so much of so much work I had to do to quiet my mind, to let go, to realize I had no control, and that this was if this was going to happen, if she was going to make it, then it was going to happen. Um, I had a really hard time connecting with her for a bit, and I had to be reminded that I needed to connect with her and that. I needed to celebrate the pregnancy because I was, you know, so focused on just what is it I need to do to get her here that I would forget, um, you know, that I could have these conversations with my child in the womb. You also uh, had I, no shortage of difficulty with the pregnancy. I mean, I, I just thought you should get a pass, like things should be easy. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up, Jesslyn. <laughs> I mean, from... Um, at 10 weeks pregnant, I was diagnosed uh, with gestational diabetes. Um, at around 12 weeks, the doctors noticed that I had a little pooling of blood under the placenta, so I had a subchorionic hemorrhage. So I was um, bedridden for a little bit at the very uh, at around the end of the first trimester, beginning of the second trimester, um, and then you know we were under high risk care because you don't really get to you don't really get to have a story like Luca and then just have a normal, healthy pregnancy and a, a normal or whatever, a, a more traditional birth. Um, that doesn't happen. You are under high-risk care. You are seen every few weeks. They examine and re-examine things over and over, almost to a fault. Um, so we had the subchorionic hemorrhage, the gestational diabetes, then there was concern with her heart, so we had a fetal echocardiogram at around 24 weeks. Then there was concern that I had something called placenta accreta, which not only put me on bed rest, but then made us have to meet with an OB, uh, OBGYN oncologist. Um, so I had to meet with a cancer specialist to talk about uh, the possibility of me having accreta and me having to, once I delivered Elia, get put under general anesthesia and then get my get a hysterectomy and potentially section out any other organs that were affected by the accreta. So um, you're right. It, it was not an easy pregnancy. And because of the concern with the placenta issues, I, I couldn't practice um, yoga. I couldn't really exercise, uh, which was all very, very also depressing for me. Um, so it, it wasn't an easy road, um, but there was, again, so much hope, so much looking forward to meeting her and 
you know, like anticipation of that first sound that she would make that Luca never made, right? Like yeah. that feeling of her breathing on me or being able to nurse for the first time. So um, with that placenta accreta concern, the doctors decided that they were going to take her out early because they did not want me to labor at all. Um, so we planned her birth, a, a repeat cesarean, um, this time a planned cesarean, which looked completely different than um, the, the emergency one with Luca, but planned nonetheless. And uh, we went in on the day after Labor Day, and a few hours later, Elia was born. Um, the The birth was still, you know, I look back and I'm so grateful and thankful, um, but it, you know, it just, I do wish there had been elements that I had requested that were honored. Um, but nonetheless, it was an amazing day um, because I got, we got Elia and she was immediately this just force to be reckoned with. Man, she came out with like a whole head of hair. Like you could take her to the salon. She, and, and all like already textured and uh, immediately able to put in a quaff, like really good hair. Um, and she Gina was so proud. She was. Gina was. Her hair. Her her hairstyle looked exactly Gina. <laughs> there was a lot of questioning of how that actually happened. <laughs> uh, we had a little bit of a stay in the NICU with her. Um, I know. I was watching her on the baby cam. That was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Golden Rhino, remember? <laughs> he gave me the like password, and I'm like, oh look, there's baby Elia. Hanging out in her crib. <laughs> it was like the most boring, but the most fascinating feed you've ever seen. Like not much was happening, but you couldn't take your eyes off of it. <laughs> yeah, there was my baby. It's, it's And I wanted people that I loved to, to see her because I, you know, I wanted them to be able to check and see her. I think part of it was still that anxiety with Luca. You know, only a handful of our friends actually got to meet him before he passed away. And our midwives and my father-in-law were there when he passed away. So really <clears throat> no one, it's just, it's, it's difficult to explain, but no one got to actually know that he was here, right? There was no right. yeah. proof other than these pictures I had and this, this big belly I had for months. Um, so, so with Ellie, I was like, you know, okay, I'm going to send, send the information out and everybody can watch her. Um, and, it was a rough few days, even that first day when I was recovering. Um, I'm so grateful for Vicky, my midwife. She, she was who we had planned our home birth with, with Luca. She, she was my person, so we had this plan in place because of everything that happened with Luca that Gina was going to go immediately with the baby if she had to go to the NICU, and then Vicky was going to stay with me the entire time so I didn't have to be alone and the baby would never be alone. And... I was coming out of the anesthesia and they weren't wheeling me down to see her yet. And Vicki kept going to the nurses and asking them and telling them of my history and my, of what happened with Luca and that they needed to bring me down there to meet her. Um, mm -hmm. 
because it, she didn't come immediately to me after she was born. They, they immediately rushed her off to the NICU. So, um, so it was a, it was a, it was a crazy few hours, um, and few days. And you got to keep all your organs. I did. Everything was in there. It's still yeah. in there. <laughs> Yay. Well, I know I, I, we did a Reiki session a few, like maybe even just a week before you went in and I had the sense like, it's going to be fine. She's not going to have to have the hysterectomy, but I just couldn't say it to you because it's just not the kind of thing you want to be wrong about <laughs> or give false hope about. But I, I was so happy because I did feel that that was going to be the outcome. And it was so neat to get to know Elia before she came Earthside as well. I remember going to those readings and she would dance around in my belly when you were doing Reiki. <laughs> Yes. Even before I felt like you could actually feel her on the outside, I swear I felt her. <laughs> well, knowing her now, I'd say you're spot on. Yeah. So I would love to, I guess, just get your take on what it was like to parent a child that got to live just from that very beginning. I mean, I, I hear you telling the story of the hospital being you know, rough for the first days and weeks that you, that you brought her home, but how was it different? How, how did you just step into that role in, in this new way? I think you, you have no other choice at that point, but to um, be the mother, right? Like she's, she was my responsibility. She, there are things that I wanted to make sure that I was doing and because of how we had planned our birth with Luca and how everything just was 180. Um, you know, I remember talking to you, uh, I wanted to be able to breastfeed her. And I was so concerned that I wasn't going to be able to, because I mean, you hear stories about cesareans and unfortunately not a lot of support from hospitals and staff. Um, and a lot of times a nursing journey can end before it even starts. So I was, really wanting to um, nurse her and attachment parent from the get-go. And so even that was a bit of a struggle with the first few, first few days at the, in the hospital at the NICU because I wasn't able to even hold her until day three. Um, but once we transitioned home, I think that I went through what all new mothers go through, um, sort of obviously the sleep deprivation uh, and the trying to do everything you can. Um, but also then there was the added element of our special, our special side effect of the grief. Um, it was magical having Ellie in my arms and it was the most amazing thing to be able to nurse her, um, no matter how challenging those first few weeks, but when she would sleep, we were up almost the entire time staring at her, making sure she she was breathing. Yeah, um, We were so concerned that she was getting enough milk and that she was pooping and peeing enough that Jean actually created a spreadsheet. And we would mark everything down and were frantic about her weight. Um, what did Gina call herself? Does she have a title? <laughs> she was the output engineer? Yeah, <laughs> I knew it was good. <laughs> so I handled everything, uh, the feedings, and Gina would do all the output, which at that time was so helpful. And I, 
am always amazed at what a great mother she, well, I mean, I wasn't expecting anything else, but she really was awesome with it. Um, well, and imagine that's part of it. I mean, not just that you got to be a mother, but that you got to watch Gina be a mother as well. And you both didn't get that same opportunity before. Yeah. I got to, I have these pictures of Gina with Luca. I think you've seen them where she's holding him and she's giving him these kisses. She's holding in his hands when he uh, was in the incubator at, in the NICU. And, and it's just so bittersweet because you, you can see this woman that's wanting to take care of this baby, you know, while I was um, obviously unable to in the ICU, but here's Gina showing up and, and wanting to just fix everything for Luca and she couldn't. And, uh, and so she's pretty much been that figure for Elias since day one. When I wasn't able to go down to the NICU um, while she was down there, Gina was, was there 24 hours a day, actually 20, 22 hours a day because they took an hour in the morning and the afternoon to swap shifts in the ER. I'm sorry, in the NICU. Mm-hmm. But Gina was there the entire time. Otherwise um, she was bathing Elia or just cleaning her. Um, she would do skin to skin, which basically meant Gina was laying uh, ever so gently on top of her. Um, and then she would just wrap her arms around her mm. to to have some skin to skin so uh so it was pretty amazing though it was you know getting getting a chance to have a live baby is something that I think maybe a lot of people take for granted because they haven't had the same experience but it was just the most amazing feeling um and and continues to be one thing that I notice about you, and we've obviously had some conversations around this as well, is that there's just such an immense amount of gratitude that you hold for her being in your life and for the opportunity to be her mother that it doesn't leave a lot of space for complaining about the ins and outs of parenting. And as you mentioned, that isn't other people's experience necessarily. And of course, being a parent is very, very hard. It has a lot of challenges and a lot of ups and downs. But um, at least I think that's true for you, that you are acutely aware of how and how much of an honor it is, no matter if she's sick or puking all over you or if she's giving you unsolicited hugs and kisses. I feel as if I have no business complaining. None at all, because I, I have a living, healthy child that I get to parent. You know, there are, unfortunately, a lot of my um, sisters-in-laws that I got to know over the years, and some of them were never able to welcome a baby into their lives. And so out of respect for them, um, and just out of respect for Luca, I think if anything, his one of the big gifts that his loss had given us is that we are so grateful and we are so patient with Elia and try and understand and we try and listen to her. You know, because sometimes I do still look at her and know very well that everything could change in an instant. And 
we might not be around. And so I want to, I want to savor every moment with her. And it, it's hard. It, it is hard on the other side though, too, because I feel like there's so much of it that I can have a tendency to, and I think a lot of us lost moms have a tendency, lost parents have a tendency to guilt ourselves and shame ourselves because we want to be so good at this and we want to because we know what we're missing. But it's, you know, parenting is, is such a transition. It is a, a, a complete change of who you are. And a lot of times there needs to be so much more self-care involved so that we can continue to do this great job at parenting this next generation. But as a lost parent, you're so caught up in all this grief and the guilt and the shame still that it, it's a, it's a challenge to be able to handle everything in front of you, you know, to take good care of your child and listen and be present and attentive while also taking care of yourself. I mean, I, I think the, the self-care factor is, is in almost every, um, like to-do list of, of parents and specifically of mothers, um, that we wish we could get to. But, uh, it feels even more so and almost like impossible to do when you're juggling all these emotions um, that come that come with parenting after loss. Have you found a workaround for that? Because I imagine putting the self-care off isn't sustainable long term. No, it's not. It makes you crazy. <laughs> Which, <laughs> it doesn't help when you add it on to the fact that you are already a little crazy because you have a child that's gone. So um, we needed to make a change. We needed to make a decision. And recently, Elia started preschool. So um, on the days that she's at school, then that's where I have my biggest um, opportunities and, and time set aside for me to take care of myself. So so that's, it's, it's been super helpful. We're, you know, now almost two months in and on the days off I, I go and I have acupuncture and I go and I practice yoga or I go to the gym. Um, or last week I, uh, also had a no pants Monday and I watched, I watched Curb Your Enthusiasm by myself while drinking a smoothie. Nice. Wild. <laughs> I so crazy. But, but it felt good just to have a little bit of time to myself and to and to laugh and like put the TV on volume twenty and not worry about waking up Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, parenting changes you. That's your idea of a of a wild day, huh? <laughs> totally. So I'm curious about um, obviously your parenting experience is different this time around. Uh, how has the grief? Uh, regarding the loss of Luca changed over time as well? Um, the grief is continuing to evolve. And I'm in this stage where um, I look back and I can, I, I, I've finally most recently been able to identify that evolution. Um, after Luca passed away, it was like months of there. There were hardly any smiles or any 
times where you didn't feel this hole inside of you, this knot in your throat, something pulling at you. And then when Elia arrived, there was this like, all of a sudden something else come inside your soul and reawakened you. Um, it, it, it made us feel alive. Um, but the grief took on such a different feeling at that point. You know, it was, it, it was exacerbated for a time. Um, those first few months after she was born, I was so ecstatic that I got to parent Elia. And at the same time, I was doubled over in grief sometimes because I didn't, I, I never had that same opportunity with Luca. You know, there were things that I got to do with Elia that I will never, ever do with Luca. And it was a stark reminder every time we reached a new milestone. Um, his first birthday after she was born was both wonderful and the hardest birthday we'd had to date. Um, and so... As time goes by, you get farther and farther away from that feeling of always being sad, um, that constant, like, this, this constant gripping at you that the grief does. So it's changed in that I don't have that as much. And, you know, there'll be entire, an entire day where I, I will just check in with Luca once, whereas before it was this, you know, constant talking to him. And now there's not as many tears as when I first was in the grief or even the first year and a half after he passed. There is much more... I have a lot of pride when I talk about him. Um, I have, I think, a greater acceptance for the fact that his story was just different. Uh, he wasn't meant to be here. And having Elia here for me, I think, has also been this incredible Band-Aid. You know, the scars, the scars are still, the wounds are still open but she has this incredible way of, of healing and bringing light to all of that. Um, so now I find myself in a space where Luca would be four and a half years old, and I have no idea what a four and a half year old Luca would look like, but I have this idea of what my three-year-old looks like, and I can just as easily in a split second, be brought to my knees with that same raw, earth-shaking. <laughs> Lola. Lola agrees. Yes. Um, grief that I had had when he first passed away. But it's, it doesn't come as often. Um, and it's, it's different. There's, a, there's obviously so much more hope than there ever was before. Um, and again, that acceptance, because it's your mind begins to realize that he's not coming back. 
think for a while afterwards too, you just have this hope, this magic feeling that maybe when you wake up tomorrow, this will all have been a, like a crazy nightmare. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but now we just, we passed different milestones, like his buddies that we, we were all pregnant with at the same time, our friends, they are pre preparing for kindergarten next year. You know, Luca would be going to kindergarten next year. And that's crazy. Wow, yeah. And I know yeah. you always thought about it when you see siblings and when you see Elia wanting to play with the bigger kids. and Yeah, or when she's... Um, it affects us a lot when we're around people that have multiple children and you know, kids, kids innately, they sort of, I feel like anyway, I guess it wasn't the case for me, but they want to play with their siblings, right? They go to a park and even though they have all these other people to play with, you know, they're drawn to play with their, their siblings. And we were on a walk in Balboa park one day with some friends and, um, these two siblings and Elia were all holding hands. And then at some point the, the two other kids decided that they didn't want to hold Elia's hand anymore. And so she was sort of on her own and just the image of it happening in front of me, that right there, it brought me to tears. I went immediately to my car and I was so overcome with the emotion of how Elia didn't get to hold Luca's hand and, and, and she wouldn't have that with her brother. I feel like there's a greater connection that they have, though, too. I understand that, and I am accepting of that. And, and Elia knows about Luca, um, although still when we show her pictures, she goes, that's baby Edia. <laughs> <laughs> that was my next question, is just if you could talk a little bit about how you keep his memory alive with her, which um, obviously sounds like it's going to evolve over time as she's older and can understand a little bit more. Yeah. So we have his pictures all over our house. Um, we have his name tattooed on us. You know, Gina's knuckles has his name emblazoned on them. <laughs> <laughs> can't miss it. Can't. You don't know Gina unless you know Luca. Um, and and there are we have his altar set up in our bedroom and an enormous picture of um, of me holding Luca when he was passing away in our room uh, in our the bedroom. One on the wood. Yeah. That is oh, so oh actually. Yes, one, that one as well, but there was um, one of the ones, uh, so remember there's like 155 pictures of Luca. And yes, I remember that exact number. <laughs> and um, there was one shot that Gina took, and when he passed away, it was near, near sunset oh. time. And so there was this actual gorgeous light coming through the hospital room at this time. And uh, it was, uh, he was, you know, I held him on my chest and... It was one of the pictures that I don't look like I'm going to lose it in. Mm. And if you didn't know better, you would know, you would think that he was alive, right? Yeah. You think that he's okay. And so, so these pictures are, are up in our house and we have his name all over the place and the letter L's are all over our house. And I mean, he, there is no space that we've created. It's just, he's a part of who we are. So she knows, she knows that, um, she knows we go to the beach. I don't think she understands the rock part yet. Um, but, but we talk about him. She's, she's not able to grasp it all. Um, 
obviously we haven't explained the whole death part to her because I just I don't I'm not really sure how to do that yet. And I know there's several publications that that uh, lost families have created to help, but I'm not there quite yet. Yeah, and I don't remember if you talked about this last time, but talk about the beach and the rocks a little bit. Yeah. So uh, every year for his birthday, we uh, go down to to his beach, which is a spot in OB where we went to at least several times a week after he passed away um, just to like get some grounding in and to try and stop our heads from spinning. The feeling of the ocean brought us some relief, that feeling that, that things were bigger than us and that all was going to be okay eventually. It, it, it helped. We also got a lot of healing done down there with the Reiki and touch therapy and um, all these other forms. So, so we would go down to the beach uh, when we were trying to figure out what we would do for his first birthday. It, it obviously it pointed to be at the beach, but then we wanted to incorporate something else. And Gina had this idea of um, all the time we were pregnant with Luca of how we were going to bring him to her favorite beach camping spot that she grew up at um, in Halama up in the central coast. And that we were going, she was going to teach him how to skip rocks. And these were just like little bits and pieces that we retain from that the feeling of being pregnant with him and these thoughts and ideas of what we wanted to do. So um, we came up with that, the, the idea of collecting skipping stones from Halama. And then her brother actually engraved Luca's name in the stones. He actually hashtagged it. <laughs> um, and so every year on his birthday, we go down to OB and we skip rocks into the ocean with Luca's name on them. And then we let off um, the paper lanterns into the sky. Um, and that's how we do his, his yearly celebration. So, so Elia knows about rocks. She doesn't know that Luca's name is on them quite yet because we haven't found any recently. And so she's, I think just starting to retain more and more memory now. Um, but like I was saying, when she sees pictures of him and I say, that's your brother, Luca, and she goes, that's me. That's baby Edia. That's mama and baby Edia. <laughs> um, it's sweet when she says it. Cause sometimes I'm like, well, wait a second. Did you come back? <laughs> hmm. Is that a thought you've had before? It is a thought that I've considered, but I had, I had spoken with several intuitives and they were, they said he wasn't coming back, that this next baby wasn't going to be Luca, mm -hmm. that Luca was going to be the spirit guide for this child, but that Elia was going to be of her own. Um, and I had recently, uh, connected with an intuitive, the one I shared with you and, and that was about right that, that it was yeah. that he, yeah, he's on the other side. And it her. almost seemed like him coming into his body was maybe not what he was meant to do. I mean, it's as painful as that is, it almost to come in like a flash like that and leave so quickly. Yeah. It almost makes me think he had a bigger purpose, something much bigger than we can even imagine. Definite uh, ripples in the water, right? Yeah. So I know that this came up a little bit in the first interview, but I'm sure it's an ongoing thing 
that you have to address. What do you say to people when they ask um, about how many children you have and just question of your family in general? You know, it's, it's always a surprise to me that people ask that. Um, especially because if I'm out and about with Elia, you know, especially at night or on a weekend, then why wouldn't I be with another child if I had them sort of thing? Mm-hmm. So it's always, always surprises me when people ask the question. And so I'm guessing you get asked it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. All the time. And you know, Gina will come home and be like, somebody asked me and we just do the eye roll together. <laughs> and I go, well, what'd you say? Um, and when someone asks me, I either completely dive into it and say, I have two. And, um, one, I had a son that passed away immediately after birth um, because I've, I've either hung out with them for a little bit and I can, I, I feel like they can handle it. Or if it's a, it's, if it's like a pregnant mom or somebody I don't know, or somebody I think that's not going to be as um, open to it, then I make it short. And actually I have to back up on that one. This is an interesting thing for me. Um, I recently a woman asked me at the store that I work at the other day uh, how many kids I have. And, oh, man, I, I beat around the bush on this one because she had a brand-new baby. Mm. And she looked like she was having a lot of anxiety already. And so I kind of hemmed and hawed and was trying to change the subject. And finally she was like, so you have how many kids? And I said to her, I, I have one. And I feel like the way I said it sort of gave me a free pass because I hate lying. Mm-hmm. But it's like I, I couldn't get into it with her at that point. It's a, it's a really uncomfortable position to be in because I have to mind other people's feelings sometimes. And, you know, I don't really I'm not interested in doing that, especially around Luca. Um, yeah, I was wondering but, how that makes you feel. It seems like I, I would be kind of pissed about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's being inauthentic, right? It's It's, it's me lying. I don't. I have two kids. I have one here physically, and then I have another one that is always around. He is in everything that I do. Um, he is the reason that I am who I am. So, I mean, it's 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 really feels shitty to not acknowledge him, even in a in a small situation with like that with somebody I probably will never see again. Um, right. But for the most part, uh, I would say 99.9999% of the time, uh, either I've responded like I had mentioned before, where I kind of um, go immediately into it, or I try and put it really softly, like, I have, I've, I've got, I have two, I had, I had two, now I have one. And so that usually will, for people that are, might show some signs of being uncomfortable, that'll usually shut them up. <laughs> Yeah. So that's a thing I think we're facing at a societal level. And I mean, there's so many instances of this. I don't want to digress away from our topic at hand, but that people have an inability to sit with someone else's pain. It's true. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. And we are, you know, some of our generations um, prior to ours, were were families that didn't talk about emotion or pain right. or suffering. 
And so it's something that is really uncomfortable to people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and we, we have this fix it society where like, let's get happy. Let's figure out how to make it all better. Where in situations like this, the only way you're going to make it all better is to pull some serious magic out of your ass. And that is not going to happen. Um, you, you have to, it, with lost families, the only way that you're going to help really is by just sitting there and being uncomfortable for a little bit. And you don't have to fix it. You don't have to come up with a phrase that's going to make them feel better. All you have to do is acknowledge their pain and, and hold a little bit of space for them. And, you know, if, if you can't figure out how to do that emotionally, then there are other ways to, um, to hold space, you know, by if, if you're crafty and you want to stamp a piece of metal with their your child, their child's name on it and present them with it. And you don't have to say a word that speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I mean, it would be great if when I said I have to, or I had to, and I only have one where people would just stop for a second and um, either ask me more or, you know, just say they're sorry or it would, it would be awesome if I didn't feel like I couldn't share because of making somebody else uncomfortable. Right. That's huge. Yeah. And I'm grateful to you for so many reasons, but one, which I think I mentioned in the last interview is that I sort of always had this belief system and, and even though I've been on the receiving end of something like this and I didn't like it, there's just this um, thought that we have that maybe people don't want to talk about it, but you have to ask. Yeah. If they don't want to, they can tell you. But if, right. if you don't bring it up, if you don't acknowledge that something is going on, then they just feel completely dismissed. Right. Like it never happened, you know? Right. So then what else can you offer to people that are listening that maybe have a friend or a family member or someone in their life that has had loss. I mean, how can people show up for their friends um, in the beginning, in the middle, and, yeah. you know, to all the different levels as things change? Um, the first thing that you can do is um, is take yourself out of the equation. And... Wow. And, and, think, and think about how to help them. So um, some... There's some great uh, links and and um, blogs on the internet that can give you some direction as well. Um, but you can do things like texting them, sending a card, um, checking in with them. And I really want to place emphasis on not just doing it the first few weeks or the first few months, but carrying them out for as long as you're friends with this person. Um, That child is always going to be missing. And as time goes by, the world around them will forget more and more that that child ever existed. And you bringing their name up and people telling me that they have 
they saw Luca's Luca's name or they had a thought of Luca and they message me with it, it brightens my day. It also gives me like a little assurance again that he is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so remembering that it's not just the coming with, I'm so sorry. Um, at the very beginning that, that makes a difference. The long term is really extremely helpful. Um, I'm also, we've talked about this. Sometimes I hate on social media. I hate, I hate hearts. I hate sending love, um, sending love and hugs, um, prayers. You like to send the poop emoji. (laughs) Yeah. You know, don't, don't send me love and hugs. Like send me, like give me a hug, like Mm. show up and give me a hug or send me love in the form of a book, a a funny book, um, a DVD that's going to make me laugh. Um, especially with such a profound and deep loss like that, you sending me a cyber heart or crying face doesn't do anything for me. And I'm really not sure who it does anything for. Um, so, so, a more actual connection, not on social media would be helpful. Um, there are things like if, if you know, if you feel really uncomfortable being around someone and talking with them about the loss, as I mentioned before, if you know how to stamp a letter on some metal, or perhaps if you're really good at um, paper mache, you know, little things that you can make, um, or perhaps even if you have the means you can, put together a meal train with friends or family that you know um, around these folks so that they can feel supported and, and not have to figure out how or when or what to make for dinner when they're reeling from the loss of their death of their child. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. Um, healing in any form, right? If you know any Reiki healers or um, intuitives or body work people that can potentially help your friends or family, then organize it. Um, there are more things you can do than just post on their comment or your comment on their post rather. Um, yeah, that's a good reminder given that we are so social media orient oriented these days that, um, just remembering that it doesn't have the same impact no. as actually reaching out, um, you know, sending a text or a call or a visit, those things will hold more water. The comments on a, a post aren't going to make me feel any less alone or isolated. Um, and also just watching what you say. I think knowing, and we've talked about this before, knowing what not to say, even more so than knowing what to say, is um, is that much more important. You know, I had people saying things like, and I take this, um, they've been dubbed the holy rollers and they will say to you, God needed an angel. Um, your baby's in a better place with Jesus. Um, your, your baby was too beautiful for this earth. So it's in heaven. Like these are things that I have experienced people saying to me, and I know that most lost families have experienced the same. Um, I read an article recently that pointed out this thinking. And it said, 
sort of what, how would your response be or how would your response be taken if your friend came to you and told you that they had cancer, right? Like would you respond with, well, I guess God needs another angel. Uh, These aren't things that you would even consider saying. So, so don't say them to families. And also if you don't know the religious beliefs and even if you do, like you don't know how they interpret the death of their child. Perhaps some families do see it as their child going to be with the Lord or some other, some other God. Um, but that, that hardly makes anybody feel better. The safest and most wanted place for your baby would be in your arms. So they're not in a better place when they're dead. Um, so watching out for things like that or any, any comment that begins with at least like, well, at least, you know, you can get pregnant. Or I remember going into a chiropractor's office shortly after Luca passed away. And the receptionist said to me, at least you can adopt. Um, I filed a complaint. <laughs> yeah. I think people, you know, need to be aware of these things. They need to be aware that language is important and questions that we ask make a difference. And sometimes it's just none of our business to dig into things either. I mean, even that question, do you have other kids or do you want to have other kids or more kids rather? It's not really people's business to be asking that question of perfect strangers. Yeah. And it's a really intimate question too. Like that's, um, especially for, uh, for anyone really, you don't know if that person is, is suffering through a loss or infertility or they've got some bigger reasons that they're not having children or, you know, not having any more. You just don't know. So you have to sort of come at it with a lot more empathy and compassion um, and know someone a little bit better. There was one more thing I, I wanted to bring up with with how you talk to somebody that's experienced a loss. And that's in the comparisons. You know, if I if I tell you that my son died, it's not necessarily okay for you to tell me that you understand because your grandmother died. Um, I can appreciate that loss as well, but a a grandparent passing away, it's sort of a normal, albeit sad, it's a normal cycle of life. They've lived an entire lifetime. A child dying is different. Um, It is, is ripping out every hope and dream that you ever had for that kid and just lighting it on fire, it's gone. So the comparisons, even if it's like, it's so well-meaning, I understand it's well-meaning, but it's, it's, we have to be smarter than that. And we have to approach it with more empathy than that. And you don't have to, again, make it better. Um, I had somebody tell me that they understood my grief because they had lost two dogs a mortgage broker that we were working with um, told me she knew how that was because her daughter had epilepsy. I am so sorry that your daughter has epilepsy. You know, I was so overtaken though with the fact of like, I would, I would give anything for Luca to be here and have just have epilepsy. Um, these are things that we don't need to say. We can not make it about us. Or not tell us that, oh, I had a roommate that lost a baby to try and compare or, you know, get me to be sad about your loss. I'm trying to explain to you 
what I'm feeling or I'm responding to your question. You don't, we don't need to make this like a pissing contest of who's sadder about what. Yeah. And at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, pain is pain, but I think in this particular case, these people, this is their attempt at actually not sitting with your pain. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the, it's the, like the discomfort of that. And the way to alleviate that is to immediately try to jump in with a story and with something that they can say, yeah, me too. Yeah. But that doesn't allow the space for them to just sit and say, wow, I'm so sorry that that happened. And then that's it. Just be quiet after that. Yeah. Or ask questions or, or have you, you know, could you tell me about him or what was his name? Yeah. Well, I think it's, this sort of idea and what we're talking about right, right now, I think is so relevant and I don't want to go too much out of bounds of, of the topic, but it's so relevant nowadays in this, like people are coming out more and more with all these traumas that they have. Right. And, um, and sometimes the response is, is, um, it's not like, I'm sorry, or how can I sit with you? Or how can I, how, how can I help? It's like, it's centering. It's like, well, that's not my experience. Or um, maybe you should do this. Or I do this. Like this works for me. You know, it's when when people are sharing something so intimate or something that hurts so much, the response sh shouldn't be automatically turned around. And it's exactly what you said. It's that whole not being able to sit with something uncomfortable. Um, and not being able to appreciate somebody else's view of it, right? Like, this is my experience. You don't get to tell me what my experience should be like. I'm sharing about this, about myself, which no one else but me knows about. So, you know, like I, I shared with you earlier, I had, a, I had a boss that told me, Luca would want you to be strong. Um which in my head it kept, it, it took all of me not to say, what the fuck do you know what my son would want? And how would you know how it feels to, to not have a child and I have to show up to work? Right, well that is strong to me right there. Doesn't matter, but I mean the fact that you got up every day. Yeah. I, I think the fact that I was, I was in tears at times at my desk, I was showing my weakness. Mm. So, so that um, was what the comment was about, they needed to buck up and just get through yeah, it totally get it together yeah but um but yeah I mean I think all around in this world we could use a little bit more compassion and um, just sit and listen to each other a little bit more yeah the stories hold so much and it's part of our it's part of our history and our culture you know as 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 humans, I think that we've gotten away from so much of that and it, and we were, we were storytellers, right? That's how history got passed on. Absolutely. Yeah. Orally. We didn't write anything down. Yeah. So people actually had to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Oh gosh. Well, I really liked your call to action to make it not about you. I mean, I think that that's a really good first step. Is, is there anything else that comes to mind that is sort of like the, the next phase of that when, I mean, maybe it's just listening. I think learning, learning to listen and remembering to show up as time 
goes by. And also just being a little bit more aware, especially if you're around families that have lost a child. Everybody has problems. Everybody has struggles and strife. But, you know, there are certain things that, you know, if you're, if you're saying things about how uh, challenging it is having three kids um, to someone who's lost a child, you know, just try and be more present and aware that our words do, in fact, matter. Um, words can really affect people. And you may not have any clue that you are doing it, but but it, it could really hurt someone who's already hurting. I don't want to give this idea of just walking on eggshells, but there are just certain things that you can be more aware in your um, in your voice and in your speak speaking to your family or others around you that that can really make a difference. Yeah, just a small action that you could take that could make all the difference to someone that's really hurting. And I am actually working on a small publication that is going to hopefully be a really quick way for people, for family and friends to be able to look and find ways to help and support um, their family or friend who has lost a child. I'm working on that. So when that's available, I will, um, of course, shoot it over to you. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I would love to share that. And, you know, it's interesting. Part of me is thinking, like, why do we need to have instructions for how to be there for people? But um, at the same time, it's, it's obviously something that we're struggling with as, as a human race right now. And we're not getting good examples in our leadership and, and people are not showing us how to do this. And as you mentioned, sometimes our families didn't show us how to do this. So um, I'm grateful that there are people like you who are willing to um, essentially educate us on something we should already know how to do. Um, I know that's a that's a judgmental statement to make, but in my heart of hearts, that's what I'm feeling. Like, isn't this a human thing that we should know how to do? But I'm also honoring the fact that, that it obviously isn't something that we do need to have support in. So um, I'm hoping that people will take it upon themselves to, to learn and educate themselves about how better to show up in the world. Yeah, I think that that is, that's also one of Luca's greatest gifts is um, if we've affected anyone, if anyone's listened to these podcasts and or anything, or read anything that I've written and maybe stopped to think about it, um, or perhaps ended up having a close family or friend that has lost a child, then they, they know what to do. They have a greater understanding of how they can show up. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else? Did you want to share any last, last thoughts or offerings? I think that I still get connected a lot with, with families that have lost children. Yeah. Mostly I, I get, I get people that reach out to me that say, you know, so-and-so just lost a baby. Can you reach out to them and contact them? Um, and I will say as, as a, as a mother who's lost a child a few years out, um, 
that I also have to set some, some like definitive boundaries with my own mental health. Sure. Because sometimes I'm not in a space where I can call or go sit with someone that's experienced a loss. And it's not that I am not, um, wanting to help is that I have a lot of us carry so much depression and grief still, um, that we have to figure out how to, how to help. So we might have to contact somebody else within our own sort of circle of moms or contact someone that it could potentially be a bit more of a healer at this time. And that's something that I think that that's, that's okay. And it's also, you know, if you have a friend that has lost a child and you expect them to help somebody else, just also hold that space that they may not be ready or capable at that time to show up um, immediately um, for a stranger or, you know, their own well-being has to get put first at times, especially when you're in this parenting phase and dealing with so many emotions and struggles of your own. So, um, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not pretty all the time. Um, you know, I, I, I get contacted and messaged uh, and I want to show up for as many families as I can. Um, and I think that so many of us do, and we do absolutely what we are able to. And then, you know, we just hope that they're more and more and we're, tr we're helping and teaching and communicating enough with others that there will be more people to support everyone. And my thought is that if you're creating a resource for people that that friend or that family member that's reaching out to you will be able to be the one to show up. Yeah. Cause I feel, of course you have a lot of resources and you've, um, you guys did an amazing job of not only making sure that you had the support that you needed, but also gathering resources for other people. And I think that's a, a strength that the two of you have as a very solid couple that not everyone had the good fortune of doing. So that's a gift to your community. But at the same time, these are things that we can just do, right? If we decide to show up for someone, then we just can be there for them. Do I have a fun question? Yeah. If you want, <laughs> what's your favorite yoga pose right now? Oh, um, you know, Shavasana will always be my favorite pose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Shavasana and I'm not sure what I said last time, but I love Shavasana because it means that I made it through the class. And then also I'm in that space where I get to absorb the practice mm. and I love getting to roll over on my left side because the left side is always the side I has, had to sleep on when I was pregnant with Luca and with Elia. And so mm. it is this, this space that I feel when I'm there, you know, because sometimes teachers go, roll over to your right, and I'm like, I'm on my left. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Do your own thing. No, you know me. Yeah, well, that's the gift of a yoga class. The teacher's instruction are just guidelines. <laughs> Get to make it your own. Um, what about, is there a parenting book that you really dig that has been helpful along the way? I have, not specifically with grief, um, but I have really enjoyed um, some of, uh, what is it, Janet Lansbury? Is oh, I don't, I don't know that author. 
she, I believe, is um, associated with like peaceful parenting and aha parenting. Hold on one second. Oh, uh, Laura Markham as well. Okay. Um, she does. A, she she wrote a book called Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids. Oh, nice. And then there's also a book that I really enjoyed called Parent Speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it touches on a lot of the language that was used when we were growing up and how many of us are always looking for, <laughs> you know, the, um, you're doing a good job. You're so good. This is so good. And mm-hmm. we, we have made a generation of, we've made several generations of people pleasers. So, um, yeah. I'll, so those have been the, the main ones that I have read in, in all that spare time I have. Um, <laughs> They're mostly in the bathroom, and then even then I don't get to read them because I never get to go to the bathroom by myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate those sort of uh, takes on parenting a little better because we have really tried to slow down as much as possible with Elia just to sort of take take it all in and try and listen to her and make sure that she feels listened to and understood. Yeah, that's really powerful, not just from the standpoint of a lost parent, but also just the generation gap that you're mentioning in, you know, maybe not having gotten that when you were growing up. Yeah. It's a huge, Um, huge thing. Yeah, she was, um, she's, she was sad this morning, and I held her, and I said, I'm so sorry you're sad, and it's okay to be sad, and I, I just held her and it, and her sad sort of dissipated after a while, but I thought about how different my own upbringing was, you know, like, don't be sad. Or I'll give you something to be sad about. <laughs> something to be sad about. Yeah. I'll make you sad. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's just a different outlook. And, um, I'm very, very appreciative for Luca because I think he really inspired, you know, we, we were planning on, being different parents and our parents anyway, but he really, really inspired us to do that much more work with it. So, well, you definitely inspire me and I'm really grateful for you. Thank you for sharing this part of your story. Thank you for having me. I am so ever grateful for you. I love you guys. Love you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye.